Hi, welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. My name is Jonathan Brack. You might know me from Reform Media Review or Philosophy for Theologians, and I am sometimes on Crisis Center. I'm here with the co-host, Charles Williams. Hey. Hey, Charles. Uh, And this is a podcast that's focusing on church history, hence the name Faith of Our Fathers. Uh, Charles is a student at Westminster Theological Seminary, um, and he is also somewhat of an expert in Charles in Charles history in <laughs> church history. Charles, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, well, I'm Charles. I hold a bachelor's uh, degree in history from the University of North Florida and a master's degree in European history uh, from the same institution. I taught high school uh, history for four years. Uh, and then also, you know, taught Sunday school history for or Sunday school uh, for for the junior high kids at my church back home in Florida. Uh, we did church history stuff. Very cool. Well, uh, this program is going to be dedicated to church history, and we are going to cover some topics uh, all the way from ancient church to we'll see how far we get. Yeah, whenever we stop, people <laughs> people get sick of hearing us. Right, um, and. Um, I guess for our first episode, we should probably talk about why church history is important. Yeah. Um, and Charles, I'll let you start off. Why in the world would anybody need to study church history? Is it necessary? Do we have to go to it? Uh, what's the What's the usefulness of it? Yeah, I, I think there. You know, studying history in general is is just useful. Um, it, it's one of those often I think overlooked categories that people don't see the usefulness till they get older. Uh, but particularly with church history, I mean, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that Christianity itself is a historical religion. Uh, and so, you know, we're not dealing with just abstract, you know, m- metaphysical speculations. We're dealing with the fact that God has entered into space and time and has acted decisively in the person of Christ and with a particular group of people, you know, the people of God, um, the church. And so to, to understand God's dealings with the people in special redemptive history is important, but also to understand how the people of God have interpreted that history is just as important. Because if you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about being entrusted with a gospel, a gospel that he hands down. Well, part of the church's responsibility then is to ensure that it is receiving that same gospel that, and that it, it carries the responsibility pass on what has been entrusted to them. And without a careful study of history, we run the danger of passing on something that hasn't been entrusted to us, something either of our own devisings or something that somebody else has devised and passed on. So there needs to be this constant going back to the Bible and going back to seeing how, you know, the church has understood what it has received in time and in space. Yeah, that's an excellent answer. Would would you say that it's it's plausible to say ignoring church history is is in one level just ignoring the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the church throughout the ages. Yeah, uh, I, I would say so. Um, if you look at Second Timothy 1, for example, you know Paul refers to the form or pattern of sound words being entrusted to the people of God. Um, and so one of the things that we need to do is to properly communicate like I said, what has been entrusted to us. And so, you know, for example, if you, if you look at, let me look it up real quick, Psalm 78. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just listen to these first eight verses. I think this is, this is just fantastic. Um, 
Where is it? Here it is. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Uh, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, the things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them uh, to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob, and he has appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, Mm. that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So we see here embedded in the Psalms a command to pass on what's been entrusted to you and to learn from previous generations, and that not doing so is considered to be an act of rebellion against God. It's almost like church history is not only a subject, it's in Scripture, it's almost like a command. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think... Talk a little bit about the the practical benefits of this program and just looking at uh, church history, starting at the uh, at the you know, with ancient church history and, and why it could be practical. Because I'm sure there's there's somewhat of a temptation on both sides. One to <coughs> overemphasize church history as mm-hmm. if you know if anybody wants to bring something new to the table, they just uh, drown it in church history. Right. Or on the other spectrum, which would be just to pretend to start a, a new and start a fresh, you know, almost sort of a hyper charismania. You just ignore any of the difficult fought battles in church history and just right. reinvent the wheel. Right. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, what, uh, you know, there's a popular uh, kind of conception floating out there. I mean, I grew up in this environment, this idea of this no creed but Christ type mentality, which mm-hmm. sounds good in the laboratory, but as soon as you enter out into the playing field, you know, all these categories fall away. I mean, practically speaking, you look at um, the first century or two of the early church, and the immediate question that the church faces is, what do we mean when we say Jesus is Lord? Mm. And what do we do with the baptismal formula? I mean, this is something that Truman harps on in his ancient church class. You know, who is Jesus? What his, is his relationship to the Father? This drives theological discussion for the next six centuries. Wow. You know, what do we talk about the, you know, you know, when we talk about Jesus in terms of the the fact that he is identified as God, but he's also identified as being distinct from God. I mean, that's John 1 right there. Right. How do we relate the two? How do we discuss it in a way that makes sense and upholds the character uh, and teaching of what the Bible explicitly says? And so as the discussions end up developing, terminology gets introduced. For example, trinity. Right. A uh, term that we use uh, all the time in uh, you know Orthodox churches, uh, the term Trinity is not found in the Bible, but it encapsulates what is explicitly taught and deduced from the teachings of Scripture. Um, so that's one thing is that that history gives us uh, the study of church history gives us an appreciation for basic theological categories that we probably wouldn't appreciate if we didn't study church history. You know, for example, if you if you wanted a solid doctrine on the Trinity, you can read you know, volume two, chapter six of Bavinck's Reformed Dogmatics and get a very fine summary of the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. He's throwing around all these terms and you're like, well, what does 
it mean by usia or substance or you know persona you know all these different terms that are being thrown around he you know Bavink does explain them but I think if you get them in a kind of a textbook type fashion you might not appreciate the reason why these are being given um, but if you're kind of working your way through church history and you're dealing with the questions that let's say Justin Martyr's facing when he's trying to talk about you know the logos you know then you start to appreciate why he's talking about this the, the concepts of identity and distinction he's he's kind of trying to to you know he, he's trying to create some categories then somebody comes along after maybe Tertullian and says uh, th- these might not work I kind of suggest this Irenaeus says well you know I want to think of the son and the spirit as you know the left and right hands of the father and somebody goes no well that kind of gets the idea but it kind of mm-hmm. connotes something you know not fully trinitarian and so we we see the implementation of certain terms and categories to you know, what's the best way we can talk about God? And so I think the study of church history is itself an act of devotion mm. and, and gaining an appreciation for these terms so that we can finally, or more fully, I should say, um, see the expression of how the church worships God. So there's a doxological import to mm. the study of church history that can be found there. So it's not just the, the bare studying of facts. Right. Um, there, there's a doxological import. But I also think that there is an import with respect to how we think about ourselves, um, how we think about ourselves. How we think about ourselves. I, I think the study of history in general provides us with a sense of identity. I mean, if you, you know, growing up in the States, you uh, in high school, you take a U.S. history class. You probably have to take like four U.S. history classes, you know, like fourth, I'm a Texan, eighth grade. so we took Texas history. Right. Remember the Alamo. Right. Yeah. Remember the Alamo. Why? Because the goal of teaching U.S. history is to make you a good citizen. It's to provide you with a sense of identity. Now, of course, there are different ways to approach history, especially since, you know, over the past three, 300 years or so, you know, there's, you know, you can approach uh, history through the study of class warfare, or you can study um, history through the, the you know, uh, ethnic races, or mm. even more recently in the past 20 years or so, uh, study history through the lens of gender, mm. right? And, gender and, and sex, almost it, like a, uh, either a, a feminist or like a Foucault-like read of church history. Right. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm just talking about history in general. You know, just talking about trying to, to talk about social constructs. Okay, um, is what I'm trying to get. And I'm not trying to say you know that they're valid or invalid. I'm just simply saying that there are different approaches to history. But regardless of your approach to studying history, uh, all of them presuppose one thing, and it's, it's this presupposition that history has some type of identity forging basis. Mm. You tell history because you're telling a narrative, and this narrative is supposed to give meaning to life. So right. the way in which you tell history kind of tells what you think is meaningful to life. Mm. The thing is, is with studying history, we kind of import our own sense of meaning, even if we say there is no meaning, and then you try to tell a narrative of history that doesn't make sense because you're trying to show there is no meaning to history, Yeah. right? The great thing about Christianity is that God has revealed himself and has given us a framework for understanding history. I mean, read Ephesians 2, 1 through 8. It gives a, a scope of cosmic history, you know, uh, of what God is doing and has done in Christ for his people and in the incarnation to, you know, that in um, the ages to come, God might manifest his kindness to those whom he's chosen to mm-hmm. save, you know. And he's done so through the incarnation in, in the humiliation and exaltation of the Messiah, fulfillment of Psalm 110, uh, that, you know, Christ as the Messiah, the true Messiah of the world, has been exalted over the forces of darkness, um, that gives you uh, that that gives meaning to history. So history has meaning and purpose. So we should study it because we live in God's world. Mm. You know, history is a created act of God, just as much as apple trees or Milky Ways, 
I'm talking about the candy bar, but also the Milky Way solar system. You know, right. everything is created. And we should also talk about history uh, in that respect. So history then, if it has meaning, then it should give us a sense of identity, but it gives us it should give us confidence then that since the church let me back up and say that the church is not just a social construct. Mm. You know, that's not to say that, you know, gender is simply a social construct or even, you know, um, you know, different um, kingdoms or, you know, it's class. Some, yeah, class. To some extent, class is a social construct, uh, but there is a, le- a legitimate aspect. I mean, you, you read Galatians 3, and Paul says without denying um, the distinction, says, hey, you know, um, whether or not you're Jew or Gentile, so he's dealing with ethnic distinctions. Mm-hmm. He goes, male or female, gender distinctions. You know, it doesn't matter whatever your social class is, your economic status, your gender, your, um, your race, your age. You know, your fundamental identity, however, is not found in, you know, what, in any of these constructs, however legitimate or illegitimate they may be. Yes. Rather, your fundamental identity is found in Christ and being, you know, it's found in the eternal decree, being part, being united to Christ by faith, mm. being part of the body of Christ, being part of the church. And so the church, since it is something that God has ordained, and since God presides over history and gives meaning to history, then studying the history of God's people has some type of intrinsic value to it. Not something that we're imposing, you know, categorically in some type of Kantian fashion onto the world around us, but something that kind of springs up naturally embedded within creation because it's, you know, doing in virtue of the fact that God has created the triune God, not just some generic God, but the triune God has created this world. That's interesting. Cause it's almost like, uh, you always hear, not maybe not always, but we, we hear around here a lot. Uh, is it possible the, the question, is it possible to do history as a Christian, does it look different on the pages if you're a Christian as opposed to if you're non-Christian? It seems to be that one of the aspects, one of the facets of the answers to that question, one facet of that that you're giving is that it's not necessarily that a Christian does history and defines what history is as he's doing it. It's that the only reason history actually can be done. Right. And that to not be something created within him within himself, right. but something that is borrowed capital, yeah. is Christian principles. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I would say that you know non Christians could probably do history in some respects uh, much better than I could probably do history. You know, somebody who who wants to give a, an economic interpretation of history, with the stuff they give is 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 valid, but. Question is, you know, at the end of the day, how are you going to connect it to to who God is? Uh, I think the value in studying church history is that it kind of gives us this kind of undergirding foundation that might not be seen at all times. Um, yeah, it's almost like why why did the Reformation happen? Is it because of uh, forces of class struggle, like a Marxist right. view of history, or is it because uh, Martin Luther had some? identity problems with his father, some sort of a psychological, you could say Freudian view of history. Right. You know, he's had, he has a uh, father issues or um, maybe it's because he's wrestling with uh, gender and he really wants to get married. And that's like the driving force behind him. So it's almost like a Foucault view of history at that moment. But, and it's not to say that 
there could be grains of truth in all of that. Yeah, but we just don't want to strain it through just an economic lens or just through the lens of you know psychoanalysis or, or anything like that. Right. And one thing that is missing is the the clear category between you know ultimate and immediate causes in right. history, and especially even though we we treat authoritatively the text of scripture because the document itself is supernatural. Right. That does not mean that the there's no more supernatural agency happening in history right. after the canon. So that a Christian can also, just as much as any of those other things, the Marxist view, the Foucault view, that can posit, you know what? Martin Luther's conscience was convicted right. by the Holy Spirit. Right. And it's like, if you are... <coughs> A, you know, a naturalist, materialist, that is not history at that, at that moment. But right. if you're a Christian, you can, Yeah, that is a genuine approach to, this yeah. is why the Reformation happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we can say these things. I also want to be careful, though, so as not to think that we could kind of put the stamp of divine providence to explain away everything, because... God's the eternal decree stands behind everything. Right. Uh, so, you know, you can't just sit there and say, well, why did the Crusades happen? Well, the Crusades happened because God caused them to be. Okay, well, yes, yeah, so did the Holocaust, if you want to be technical. Right. So I think we still, in, in, in the field of studying history, need to deal with, um, you know, material explanations. Um, right. So still dealing with an empirical methodology, um, I, I think, is still a, a, an appropriate way to go. So I, I don't want to just kind of use this as a backdoor for bringing in, you know, some type of, you know, theological justification for being a sloppy historian, right. which I think happens a lot when people want to try to do quote unquote Christian history. Mm. Um, and, and so I do, I do want to kind of guard against that. But at the same time, you know, in, in terms of giving some type of ultimate explanation for things or having a, a, a framework for a grander narrative, right? Uh, I, I think in that respect, we we can talk about Christians doing history. But I just want to be careful so that we just don't use. You know, the Westminster Confession of Faith or, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism or the Doctrine of Providence as an excuse not to do our homework. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's that's very well said. It's uh, providence explains everything, so it almost explains nothing. Right. So um, I think that's, that's very important to maintain. And at the, the exact same time, knowing that even the most basic naturalistic claim, such as a caused B, mm-hmm. that those aren't brute facts and they can only be understood within a Christian worldview, right. borrowed capital, right? stolen capital, as Dr. Garner likes to say. But so you can say, yes, uh, is it possible to do um, history as a Christian? I would say, yes, you can do your history as a Christian, <laughs> just like you can do anything as a Christian, but that does not equal that you do it extremely well right. as a Christian. Right. Um, sometimes you're not as careful, or yeah. sometimes you overreach, or or don't see uh, other things that the Lord gifts to non-Christians when they're doing academic work. Right. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about what we're going to talk about in the future episodes. Yeah. Um, we're going to spend probably the next uh, 30 episodes or so just looking at uh, the early church I think one of the the benefits to studying ancient church history, the first six centuries especially, really focuses in on the question of who God is. Um, I mean, if the Reformation is defined by, you know, and this is, uh, you know, 
really, really reductionistic, but just say if we want to say that the Reformation is, you know, a, a, a reclaiming of the doctrine of justification by faith, mm-hmm. the first six centuries also gives us great material in that it gives us a theological framework for a doctrine of God, doctrine of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. You know, for if we want to kind of simplify this, if the Reformation tells us about the work of Christ, it's a study of the early church that will tell us about the person of Christ. Mm. By giving us the the, the language of uh, the two natures of Christ, the hypostatic union, uh, you know, uh, I mean, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definition emerged from this time period. It is, I mean, riots are breaking out in the streets in Alexandria as a result of these things, and I think the the implications of these discussions uh, have practical import on our lives. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things in in studying. Early the early church fathers is I think a lot of people go in if they begin trying to read the early church fathers or maybe the reason they don't read them is they think that these guys are writing as basically you know philosophers just speculating on you know metaphysics that have nothing to do with reality as if they're just guys out in the desert living by themselves writing you know you know, all these metaphysical speculative philosophies that have no bearing on the day-to-day. But the fact of the matter is the guys who are writing this stuff care about using terminology, but they're also pastors. And Mm. the reason they care about terminology is because they care about their flock. Mm. And so I think one value and one benefit studying this, especially, I mean, if you're you're in pastoral ministry or if you're in youth work, I think one value to... uh, uh, and studying church history, hopefully maybe you'll continue listening to us with uh, future episodes, uh, is to think about why should terminology matter when I talk to a youth group on pizza night? Yes, it's a great question. Um, I, I think terminology does matter, and I think studying the church fathers gives us a better idea of why terminology matters. It's not good enough to say, well, as long as you love Jesus, that's fine. Mm. Um, rather, the question is, well, w- what do you mean by Jesus? Who is Jesus? Why should I love Jesus? If we're going to talk about it like that, you know, what salvific import, what does it have to do for a teenager who struggles with internet pornography? Mm. You know, what does this have to do? And and what I hope to do is that in talking about future, in, in these future episodes about these things, try to bring in the practical nature of why, you know, studying and reading, let's say, Tertullian or Augustine, you know, in his confessions, or reading Greg of Nancyanzen on the Trinity, how can this impact the way I relate to my kids, if you're a parent? Um, and, and I really think that this is the way to go. How can the Chalcedonian definition help me in biblical counseling? Yes. Um, I, th- I think these are things that are worth thinking about. So I don't want to just sit there and talk about, you know, well, this is what this guy said, and the other guy said, well, he's a heretic, and he's wrong because he didn't use the same terminology we did. That is a superficial reading of the history. Mm. Uh, I think a better way of history, uh, a better way of reading history is saying these guys are pastors, or, you know, the term they used were bishops. Um, why are they writing about this? Why are they writing these letters? Why is Tertullian writing against Praxeus? Because Praxeus claims that God is kind of like water you know, steam and ice, more or less. Why does Tertullian say that if you have a God like that, you have a God who does not save? Right. And yet you have, and and therefore you you present a cruelty, a disservice to your father. Right, right. And that's one of the things we will focus on is we'll spend specific weeks looking at church heresies and talking about the, the, the doxological deficiency found in it, how it's an affront to the character of God, but also how it impacts how we 
um, relate to one another in the practical sphere. For example, um, one of the earliest church heresies is a heresy known as Docetism that denies the, that Christ actually suffered. Docetism. Docetism. So not referring to like DOS, the old operating system. <laughs> right, right. Docetism. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, there's no Commodore 64 anywhere <laughs> in sight for years and years to come. Uh, but what Docetism does, the Docetists argued, particularly coming from Asia Minor, uh, you know, they they denied the deity of Christ, or I'm sorry, they denied the incarnation. That they they said that Christ was fully divine, but he only appeared to be human, and he mm. didn't truly suffer. And you think, okay, well, what's the big deal? So long as you love Jesus, right? That's kind of the the big tagline for the day uh, these days, in, in a lot of churches I've I've seen and friends that I have and stuff. Um, what what you see is there's a guy by the name of Ignatius of Antioch. He was actually a disciple of the Apostle John, and we have about seven of his letters. Yeah, and as he's about to be martyred, this is around your Year 117, 118, he writes a series of letters to these churches, and one of the, the letters he writes is to the church at Smyrna, and he and the church at Smyrna was dealing with the docetic heresy. The Docetists were real popular in this area. He's writing to the church saying, you know, don't give in to these guys. Why? What cruelty kind of pervades the docetic heresy? He says the docetic heresy. He ends up telling them um, that, you know, because of their denial of suffering, they don't care about the suffering of the widows, mm. the poor, the orphans. They uh, negate the validity of martyrdom because Christians are getting martyred at this time. You know, Ignatius is on his way to Rome to get executed. Yeah, they thrown into the lines. Vain, so right. Mm. And so he says, by, by eliminating a theology of suffering, you've created a dream world. I mean, mm. honestly, I, I see little difference between Docetism and Buddhism. Wow. Um, and, and I mean, we could kind of hash these out in greater detail when we talk about docetism, but I mean, that's just one practical implication. Your view of Christ determines how you think about how you relate to the poor and the widows and the orphans. That is the point that Ignatius of Antioch makes. Wow. And that's just one of about a dozen different heresies, all that have different ramifications on how you relate to others and also how you relate to God. And of course, you know, as Jesus said, the two great commandments are found in loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? Loving your neighbor as yourself. Right. Yeah. That's excellent. Well, hey, this sounds good, um, and uh, thanks for listening. We hope uh, that you'll stay with us as we go through uh, some church history, talk about heresies, you know, practical theology as a result of talking about the heresies. I'm sure there's going to be some interesting stories uh, that you might have passed over once you uh, read some church history books or so, but um, we'll look up quotes and talk about geography and everything, and... Um, Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Jonathan Brack. I'm Charles Williams. And this was Faith of Our Fathers.